What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Coinbase getting some love. It is a different week. Thank you, Scott, and hi, everybody. It's a new week, and we have fresh challenges confronting investors, namely from the Fed. Rate hikes are coming this year. We know that. But we'll hear from someone who says much more needs to be done on the balance sheet, or none of this makes any sense. We'll talk to David Zervos about that as yields hover at the top of their recent range and as we await the CPI report this week. Plus, a merger in the airline space, Frontier buying Spirit for $6.6 billion. Will more and bigger airline deals be next? And we're getting you ready for more earnings with Take-Two, Pfizer, and Co. All getting previewed today in earnings exchange. But first, let's get to Dom Chu with the market numbers. Feels like it was a blink of an eye, and we're, we're already over halfway past the SP 500 earnings season, right? So earnings are a catalyst, and they will be this week. Over 70 SP 500 companies will report their numbers, and those could be potential catalysts. But today, the trading has been fairly steady. It's been a very tight range, just fractional gains and losses for the most part. You can see the Dow Industrials right now down about 45 points, 35,046 the last trade there. The S&P is 44.88. That's down 12 points or about one quarter of 1% and about four tenths of 1% declines for the Nasdaq Composite. 53 points to the downside, 14,044 year level there. Cryptocurrencies, very much a focus right now because with Bitcoin prices up about 6% right now, you may recall that during the lows back on or about January 24th, Bitcoin prices hovered just above 33,000. We're at 44,000 now, just to give you an idea of just how far it's come over the course of the last few weeks here. Ethereum prices, 31.44 the last trade, 5% upside. Ripple up 17% as well. And by the way, Coinbase Global, MicroStrategy, a couple of the names closely associated with crypto- cryptocurrency from the exchange and balance sheet standpoint, up about 6 to 7% as well. And the stock of the day right now is Peloton because the volatility continues. We got reports late last week, according to the journal, that it might be Amazon looking to take over Peloton, exploring some possible scenarios. And then the Financial Times said it might be Nike looking at some scenarios. And then analysts like Dan Ives over at Wedbush saying Apple could be in the mix. Basically, all of that speculation abounding has led to a 15 percent rise in Peloton shares, albeit we are still down 81 percent over the last year. But Peloton, even with the massive spike that we've seen in value today, Kelly is still a shell of its former self. Remember, at the heights of the pandemic, it was worth close to $50 billion. It's now closer to around $9 billion. Kel, back over to you. More easy to take over. We'll see. Dom, thanks very much. All right, growth looks to be slowing considerably this quarter, leaving some to wonder if the Fed is moving too quickly. Former Fed official Alan Blinder in the Wall Street Journal today warning the Fed to raise rates, quote-unquote, gently. Steve Leisman is here now with the results of CNBC's latest rapid GDP update. What do we know, Steve? Well, uh, Kelly, it's interesting. Despite the strong jobs report, the consensus forecast in the CNBC rapid update remains for a pretty sharp first quarter growth slowdown, followed by a rebound in the second quarter. All of this comes amid expectations for high but 
gradually declining inflation. We'll show you that in a second. CBC Rapid Update. We woke up 11 economists early Sunday morning to get their forecasts. We see the very strong fourth quarter growth of nearly 7%, giving way to just 1.4% this quarter as a result of the Omicron slowdown. The highest forecast is 2.5% this quarter. But we have some lows in the zero and minus 0.5. So some people looking for a decline. The consensus sees GDP snaps back to 4.4% slowing again into year-end towards trend. Significantly, while GDP is expected to slow, it is forecast to remain above what's considered to be that 2% or less trend growth for the next two years. Last year's 5.7 slows to 3.6 this year and 2.4% in 2023. That's a pretty strong outcome given expected rate hikes and high inflation and balance sheet reduction. PCE inflation index, the Fed's preferred indicator, seen gradually declining from 6.1 in the fourth quarter, 3.9 mid-year, and 2.6 by year, and still above but approaching the Fed's 2% target. The debatable question for investors is the soft landing for the economy that seems built into these forecasts amid expectations for six rate hikes over the next year and as much as $500 billion in balance sheet runoff. Kelly? And maybe that's not enough, according to my next guest. Steve, stay with us, if you will. My next guest says the Fed does have to remove the so-called punch bowl, but that it makes no sense to remove one of them while leaving the other in place. Joining me now is David Zervos, the chief market strategist at Jefferies. David, it's great to have you. The balance sheet, $8.8 trillion in size. And why can't they just leave it alone? Well, Kelly, I mean, the balance sheet really did all the heavy lifting during the crisis. I mean, 175 basis points is what we cut uh, back in March of 2020. Uh, And then and that's, that's just a small number. And then we added almost $5 trillion to the balance sheet in very short order. That was the big kind of kahuna in the, in, the, in the trade that the Fed did and what they brought to the table, what punch they brought to the table. So you have this giant punch bowl that you created in the balance sheet. And now you want to go and kind of mess around with the rates that weren't even really that much of a part of what got us out of this mess or... Alternatively, Kelly, what might have been behind some of this inflationary pressure that we're getting today, this 7% CPI? So I think focusing on the balance sheet has really got to be a key. I I was excited to see uh, Jay Powell kind of leave the door open to asset sales during his testimony or um, when he was doing the the nomination hearings. It certainly is part of what the Fed released, and it's certainly open to it in in what they released in the last FOMC. And I thought the speech by uh, Kansas City Fed President Esther George really kind of hit home with the idea that the balance sheet would maybe be a little more focused than what the market is thinking. And I, and I think it's a very interesting time to discuss it and, and think about what the Fed does next. Yeah, well, I appreciate the comments because we always hear so much going into these cycles about quantitative easing, quantitative easing, and all the effects. It's, and then on the way out, it seems like everyone says, nah, it doesn't matter now. You know, tapering's not tightening, and then the balance sheet's not the same. Let me bring Steve in here, Steve, because there's also some who are saying if we leaned more on the balance sheet, maybe that could help longer end rates start to rise. You know, there's more supply coming into the market and that would steepen the yield curve instead of flattening it. Well, you know, Kelly, first let me just say, the Fed is dealing with the 800-pound gorilla. It will be reducing the balance sheet. I think uh, Powell and other Fed officials have made that clear. The real question, I think, is how the Federal Reserve reduces the balance sheet. And I think... A pass. The question is a passive or active runoff, and and I hear the Fed leaning some members at least to a very active runoff, and the idea being this: if you let or allow or force more of the long end or, or longer term treasuries 
to run off. That will put more pressure on the long end and steepen the yield curve and potentially or possibly allow the Federal Reserve to do fewer rate hikes, which really affect the short end. In fact, there are some Fed officials who I think say you cannot, cannot raise short-term rates without creating some active balance sheet runoff on the long end. So the Fed is, 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 has the 800-pound gorilla, I think, squarely in its sights. The question is, uh, I guess, how do you uh, let them out of the cage is really the question here. Sure. And Dave, because you are always looking at this from a market point of view, what are your thoughts there? So I think a, a couple of things. One is I think it would be uh, really a, a testament to success at the Federal Reserve if they could manage this balance sheet in an unwind phase more aggressively, less passively, and use it the way they've used it during times of stress. It'll prove to many of the naysayers that QE and on the opposite side, QT, uh, are very powerful tools in the tool chest that we should be basically harnessing and honing and, and learning to use, especially as we sit in this very low rate environment, this near the zero lower bound environment where we get kind of hung up with being able to use traditional monetary policies. So I, I think it's it's almost behooves the Fed to kind of embrace this 800 pound gorilla that it created, try to harness it, try to use it. And uh, I think the market will actually respond very well to it. I don't think you'll see a tantrum of any kind. I think there is quite a lot of demand for long end securities. We've seen that consistently. We've seen this conundrum idea come back in. And I think it would be a uh, It'll be a very successful part of uh, the Federal Reserve's attempt or uh, desire to remove accommodation and remove it quite quickly. And I think that's actually the important part. Rather than doing 50s and intermediate rate hikes if they needed to do that, right. I think having the threat of the balance sheet be a little bit more active could be just the ticket they need to kind of keep the market uh, getting the amount of accommodation removal that it, that it sees fit as inflation goes up a little bit temporarily, but does start to Kelly. come down by the end. Steve? Yeah. You know how you get a cup of cappuccino and there's all this foam on the top and you got to get through the foam to get to the coffee <laughs> or the stuff that you really want? Beer too, yeah. So the balance, sheet, the balance sheet may be a bit like that. And there are estimates out there, which is really interesting, and this really wow. gets to what David's talking about and your question of the effect of the market. There could be a trillion or a trillion and a half of foam in the balance sheet that the Fed could take off the top without having almost any impact at all on markets or the liquidity out there. Uh, and that may be one reason. If you look at our estimate from the Fed fund, from the CBC Fed survey, what you see is we're looking for 500 billion coming off this year, 860 next year, or 900, sorry, 900 uh, billion plus next year. If you look at that, and really, the market doesn't seem all that phased by it. Yes, yields are up a bit, but not crazy. And it may be because there's this froth in the balance sheet of as much of a trillion and a half the Fed could take off and take off relatively quickly without having much impact. Dave, quick, quick, quick last word. Put a point on all of this for us. Look, we, we've, we've loved Q, QE for a while. QE's been the success story. We're going to go into QT, some form of it. Uh, and that's going to be really tricky for markets. You know, Kelly, we had our I Love QE hats a long time ago. <laughs> I think we might even have had one of these back in 2014. This year we're running with the uh, the Heartbreak QT hats. Um, this is, uh, you know, this is going to be the way we, we approach the year. It's it's quantitative tightening time. Oops, can't get my camera right. Um, and, and I think you got to be careful with stocks. you got to be really, really careful when the Fed's going into QT. Whether Steve's right and it's gradual or I'm, I'm right and they go a little bit more active. 
I think no matter how you slice it, the, the, the quantitative tightening process is going to be one that is a little bit bumpy and potentially a lot bumpy for risky assets. All right. We will leave it on that note. It's uh, market Dow's fighting into positive territory at 44 today. Guys, thank you. Great stuff. We have. What are you drinking, Dave? Uh, just having some tea. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> in, in my afternoon tea. Just asking. Dave Servos with Jeffries. Steve Leeson, we appreciate it as well. All right, let's get to Washington, where President Biden is hosting a high-stakes bilateral meeting with the new German chancellor at the White House in just about half an hour. The U.S. hoping to offer some energy supplies that could keep Germany from needing to rely so much on Russia for fuel. That's been undermining the West's toughness on Russia as it threatens to invade Ukraine. Kayla Tausche is here now with more. Kayla, what's on the table? Well, Kelly, today's meeting is part of a diplomatic sprint aimed at deterring a Russian invasion of Ukraine, which U.S. intelligence suggests could happen within the next week. Germany has been seen as a weaker link in NATO's united defense of Ukraine, not sending arms, backing away from blocking Moscow from the swift payment system and refusing publicly, at least, to commit to keeping that new Nord Stream 2 pipeline Offline, speaking exclusively with The Washington Post ahead of today's visit, Chancellor Olaf Scholz saying all sanctions options are on the table, but we are also clear about the necessary strategic ambiguity so Russia cannot go to a computer and count whether it will be too expensive or not. This weekend, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said definitively if there is an invasion, that pipeline will not be turned on. I'll let the German chancellor speak for himself, but the Biden administration at President Biden's direction has been absolutely simply clear on this. Mm -hmm. If Russia invades Ukraine, one way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. And Russia understands that. Under Schultz's predecessor, the U.S. and Germany reached an agreement simply that the two countries would not allow Russia to use energy and Nord Stream 2 as a weapon. These negotiations today come as global supply uncertainty has pushed natural gas prices higher in recent months, even despite the dip today, with shipments from around the world possibly headed to Europe and being diverted from ports elsewhere. A senior administration official says that the 30 NATO countries could have slightly different responses to Russia. For one, French President Emmanuel Macron is in Moscow today for personal talks with President Putin. He faces re-election in April. Kelly? So what is the White House hoping to get from Germany uh, today with this meeting, Kayla? Well, President Biden is going to be pressing the German chancellor to try to get him to agree to some of the most severe sanctions that U.S. lawmakers and U.S. administration officials want to put on the table that Germany so far has been reluctant to sign on to. But even so, Kelly, what's most important to the White House at this point is perhaps less what the two leaders say afterward, but just these pictures of the two leaders shoulder to shoulder. The same reason why you saw the top ruling emir from Qatar here at the White House last week. Those pictures are worth a thousand words when it comes to trying to deter Russia in the near future. Yeah, Kelly. and when, you know, saying Nord Stream 2 won't go forward is almost as much a threat to Germany uh, as to Russia. Very, very interesting. Kayla, thank you. We appreciate it. Kayla Tash will be monitoring that meeting for us. Coming up, the two largest low-cost carriers in the country are merging to become the fifth largest airline in the U.S. There are still a lot of questions left to be answered, though, like who's leading the new company? Will the deal survive regulatory scrutiny? And does it signal that more airline consolidation is ahead? Spirit up 16% on this today. Plus, we're tackling video games, vaccines, and what's in vogue in today's edition of Earnings Exchange. The action, the story, and the trades on Take Two, Pfizer, and Cody. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC.
The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back. Two of the biggest discount carriers, Frontier and Spirit, are planning to merge in a $6.5 billion deal that would create the fifth largest airline in the U.S. Spirit shares up 16% on the news. Frontier gaining about 3%. Spirit CEO Ted Christie discussed the timing of this earlier on Squawk Box. We get asked that question or will be asked that question, why now? And the the answer I'd like to give is why not? I mean, this is a really fantastic combination. As Barry just said, we think it's extremely complimentary uh, there's going to be a lot of value to deliver to the consumers. This is not a regular airline merger. This is a completely different thing where you've got two low-cost leaders getting together to figure out ways to drive more growth. But how likely is this deal to get done and which deals might be next? Joining us now is Helene Becker, Senior Research Analyst at Cowan. Helene, it's great to have you. What do you think the re- rationale for this deal right now is? Hi, Kelly. Good to see you again. Um, so I think they would not actually be able to grow unless they merged. There's only a finite amount of gate space available, um, a finite amount of infrastructure at airports around the country, and a finite amount of pilots. And if you start to think about what they intend to do in terms of growth and you realize what um, the pilot replacement cycle is this decade for the industry in general, you realize there's no way these guys could have grown as fast as they want to grow um, because they're going to run up against a lack of crew members. And and we ran the math. Um, American Delta and United said recently they're each hiring between one and 200 pilots a month. So that's for the foreseeable future to replace retiring pilots. So think about that, you know, 150 at the midpoint um, per airline for 12 months is 5,000. Plus these guys have combined 210 aircraft coming between now and 2026. So at roughly 14 pilots per plane, that's another roughly 5,000. So you're looking at them hiring a thousand pilots a year. So that brings you to 6,000 plus the Southwest pilots, which are probably another 600. And by the time you're done, you need 7,000, the industry needs 7,000 pilots a year for the foreseeable future. And there's no way they would be able to grow um, as, as rapidly as they want to grow without doing, without, I think, without doing this. Very, very interesting. And I love the way you run the numbers. I appreciate that. So what does it mean for the bigger carriers? You know, I think what's going to happen is this becomes the fifth largest. And it's not even 
it's still, it's not even that big. It's right. still a third of, um, I think, number four, right? American Delta United and Southwest are our top four. And I think the numbers are like 22%, 20%, 18%, and 17% um, for each of those four and in terms of market share. And these guys are going to be 7%. So you're still not even in the league. Um, I don't think it impacts them as that much. And remember, once we get returned to office and once people, business travelers start traveling again, you're going to see those guys focus a little less on the leisure markets that they've been focusing on the last two years um, to fill their planes. And, and then these guys, of course, are very leisure focused. I, I would guess 95-ish or more percent of their 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 um, traffic is is low is people looking for low fares is sure you know, not not high fare people <laughs> right so what does it mean for Alaska and JetBlue in particular here which are going to be the ones left with this kind of low single digit market share yeah um, I don't and and I don't I don't think that the merge I think this deal can get done but that doesn't mean there's going to be there isn't going to be a lot of regulatory questions that have to get answered I think Alaska and JetBlue can survive and remember Alaska did the Virgin America acquisition and that did not go as well for them as they would have liked I think for both of those companies organic growth in the short term makes sense um, Maybe longer term, they would have to merge, but they both have a pretty robust mix of business and leisure travelers. Both of them have an agreement with American Airlines, Alaska on the West Coast, JetBlue on the East Coast. Um, I mean, yeah, the, for, for uh, in increasing international service, because neither one really has a robust international portfolio um, other than interline agreements with other airlines. Um, you could see that happening, but not. I don't think so in the short term. Very interesting. So we'll be more focused on them as these uh, other two combine into it will still be a, a minor fifth player. You think that basically can happen. Helene, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Again, she's got a $43 price target, formerly 20 on Frontier, outperform on both, and they're both having a pretty nice session on this news. Still coming up. The stock that loves inflation with shares hitting a new all-time high after flexing their pricing power muscles this quarter. We'll tell you what's this mystery chart next. Plus, we've all seen calorie counts on menu boards. Could a carbon footprint be next? We'll tell you where it's coming and what impact it could have on stores and restaurants. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great.
Welcome back, everybody. The Nasdaq giving up some big gains. It was up 100, more than 130 points earlier. We're now negative by five. The S&P is slightly negative on the nose at 4,500. The Dow is still up 58. And let's check the sectors with energy leading the way. After a 25 percent rally to start the year, communication services is the biggest laggard today and also for the year, down 10 percent since January 1st. Within that sector, Meta is leading the declines, along with Netflix, Alphabet and Discovery, as you can see here. These are all the ones that are weighing most on the market. On the flip side, the cruise stocks been moving higher. Royal Caribbean, Norwegian, Carnival, all up more than 5%. Tyson Foods was the mystery chart we showed you before the break. The meat packer is leading the S&P on pace for its best day since March 2020 and hitting a record high after a strong earnings report. Tyson says demand was strong with significant growth in its operating margins. They increased beef prices by nearly a third. So we'll have to wait and see if shoppers steer clear the next time they hit the grocery store. Again, a huge session and a big start to the year for Tyson Foods. Over to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. And here's what's happening at this hour. A second man has pleaded guilty to charges in an alleged 2020 plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer because they didn't like COVID restrictions. Caleb Franks says he willfully conspired with five others. He could be a key witness at the March trial of the remaining four defendants. Frontier Airlines suffering major flight interruptions on the day it announced a deal to buy Spirit. Frontier says it's working to restore operations after a ground stop earlier today. According to the tracking site FlightAware, Frontier has canceled 22% of its flights today and another 22% are delayed. Not a good check with your airline, as the saying goes. On the news, what the Frontier Spirit merger will mean for travelers and will it face opposition from federal regulators? That's tonight at 7 Eastern with Shep on the news. The French President Emmanuel Macron seeking to ease tensions with the Russian President Vladimir Putin. They don't really sit very close together, as you can see there. They're trying to ease those tensions at a distance over, over Ukraine. Macron telling Putin he wants to avoid war and build trust. Macron is the top Western leader to visit Moscow since Russia began massing troops on the border with Ukraine. They're sitting about as close as I am to you, Kelly. Right, exactly. It's a, about, a, what, about 80-foot difference? Yeah. 80 feet. That's yeah. a long table, man. <laughs> Tyler, thanks. I'll see you see soon. Ya. Still ahead, will Pfizer's non-COVID pipeline be enough to beat the street? Also, Take Two has beaten on earnings in 19 out of the past 20 quarters. And Cody has climbed more than 15% immediately following its last two reports. We have the action, the story, and the trade on all three of these earnings names next. Welcome back. The busiest part of earnings season is just behind us, but there's still plenty of big names on deck. So it's time for another edition of Earnings Exchange, where we give you the action, the story, and the trade in three names set to report results. And we're going to start with Take Two today. They're reporting after the bell. The shares surged 7% Friday on news they'll release a, ver a new version of Grand Theft Auto. Just last month, they also said they're buying Zynga for $13 billion. Now, the shares are down about 2% on the year. They're 19% off the highs. There's a lot to unpack here. Julia Borson has the story for us today, and our trades come from Ari Wald, executive director and head of technical analysis at Oppenheimer. Welcome to you both. Julia, what are you be watching? 
Well, look, Kelly, this is a company that's expected to grow its revenue about 7.5%. Earnings per share are projected to decline about 2%. But what's most in focus here is the guidance. You mentioned that Zenga deal. We're waiting for more insight into how that deal is going to close. We're nearing the end of that go shop period that ends on February 24th. So any insight into what will come of the combined companies? There's even been some speculation that the combined take to Zenga could be an attractive takeover target. We'll see if that comes up on the call or if there's more M&A talk. And then this question of what's next with the Rockstar Games next chapter in that Grand Theft Auto franchise. This is an incredibly lucrative franchise. We saw the stock jump on news that this next chapter is in the works. So we'll see if that plays into any financial guidance that the company shares. And sort of overarching here is the Microsoft Activision uh, Activision deal. Ari, what do you make of the stock? What would you do with it? It seems the gaming industry has been well bid since that Microsoft Activision news came out a, a couple of weeks ago. We'd argue we're, we're actually somewhat skeptical of that strength. We actually added electronic arts to our sell list this week based on a purely technical uh, perspective. Uh, we would say that t- uh, Take-Two's trend is stronger than than electronic arts, but wouldn't really call it in a, a standout here either. So. I think you play this as a range, a pretty wide range too, no less, but 155 on the downside, 185 by weakness sell strength, I think is the play. Is there, so, you know, they're, they're looking at Zynga, area. I don't, if I recall, the stock didn't take that one very kindly. What would make you more excited about Take-Two's fortunes here? Listen, it's been making lower highs for a couple months now. The, the relative strength versus the market is, trying to, to, to pick up here. I think you buy these stocks that, that haven't participated well when you have a little bit more conviction in the market. I, I think still market action overall is going to be consolidated through the first half. I think it does pick up in the second half, and I think that's going to be the, the time to buy stocks like Take-Two. All right, back half. You're putting them on the back burner. Ari, thanks. We appreciate it. Julia, we appreciate it as well. Julia Borson will be following that report tonight. And we turn to Pfizer, which reports before the bell tomorrow. Coming off a stellar year, seeing record revenues from that COVID vaccine, but the street's focusing on what lies after the pandemic. Pfizer shares are actually down about 10% to start the year. Meg Terrell here with the story on this one. Is it time to start talking non-COVID, Meg? Well, Kelly, when it's expected to contribute 40 to $50 billion in revenue between the vaccine and the antiviral pill, it's hard not to make that the top priority in terms of what folks are looking for in 2022 guidance tomorrow morning from Pfizer. So that will be really important, both on those fronts. Also, of course, we have the data for young children under the age of five for the vaccine coming up expected on Friday. So there may be some questions about expectations setting around that, although we're not expecting the actual data until later in the week. Of course, a lot of folks wondering what Pfizer is going to do with all of that cash. Will they do bigger M&A? And that would be healthy for the biotech sector more broadly. So that will be a big focal point on the call. Then, of course, what's going on with the rest of the pipeline? As you said, people will be looking beyond COVID. They want to know about the health of the rest of Pfizer's business. So that will be a really important point too, Kelly. And we're looking at the shares area trading at less than nine times forward earnings. It's, it's let off some steam here in recent uh, weeks after really being uh, doing well during the market's flight to safety since November. Uh, so I think you put by this pullback or it looks attractive to us, especially if you're managing a, a high dividend um, uh, portfolio. I think this is one of the better looking charts uh, that, that gives you that theme. 
do want to consider, however, though, that those dividends do become less attractive if market rates are going to move higher over the long term. So overall, it, this was a stock that broke above its year 1999 peak in recent months. It's consolidating back to that breakout point. I think it's building a bit of a near-term base here at $50. And we're, this, it's a near-term opportunity to buy long strength based on the trends that we're seeing. We like this pullback. Wow, it's not often we show a 20-year stock chart, but there it is with a, what looks like about a 40% gain during that time. So, Meg, you would say maybe the pandemic has helped uh, Pfizer with a bit of a revival here. Well, absolutely. I mean, the fact that Pfizer has come through not just with the first vaccine, but also the strongest antiviral pill in terms of the results it's shown has really shown, I think, the strength of Pfizer's R&D engine. But I think the street is waiting to see whether that spreads to other therapeutic areas as well. And then, of course, what kind of assets do they want to bring in with that cash to keep continuing the growth? Yep. And again, it looks much better to go back uh, the past couple of years uh, for Pfizer. Meg, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Our Meg Terrell. All right. Finally today, an earnings exchange, the beauty retailer Cody. This one's been a big one in terms of moving on earnings the last couple sessions. They report tomorrow morning. They had big revenue growth and rosy guidance last quarter, but the shares are down 18 percent to start 2022. Christina Partson Evelis here with the story. Christina. Well, the first thing we will be looking at is holiday sales. Cody has about roughly 25% of its sales for the quarter that comes specifically from the holidays. So will they do well, especially when competitor Ulta had a 30% increase just in that quarter alone? The second avenue is just segment growth within certain products like CoverGirl. Last year, there was a few uh, viral CoverGirl TikTok videos, and they are, uh, the CEO has said that they are put, uh, putting momentum behind CoverGirl, especially heading into this year. And then we can't discount the strength of the Kardashians. Cody does own 51% of Kylie Kardashian's line, as well as about 20% of Kim Kardashian's line. Still relatively new, so we'll be looking for any words or comments on uh, those launches or any new products. And some of the cons for the stock, the fact that it has less exposure to skincare, which has higher margins, and less exposure to China. So there are some potential avenues for growth. All right, Ari, what would you do with Cody? Kylie, not only is it down to to, uh, start the year, down over the last seven years, uh, as well. So really emblematic, the value stock and emblematic of the problems that a lot of value stocks have had. It's been making lower highs since 2015. Now it did participate in the big late 2020 uh, turnaround and, and surge in value. But really since then, it's moderated. You see it in the 200 day average. And so we side with the, what we're seeing as a deterioration in trend and would be looking to sell this one into $9 resistance. That's right about where the stock's 200-day average comes into play. All right, we're around 863 this afternoon. And it's funny you call it a value stock. It's not exactly cheap. We just said Pfizer was trading at nine times earnings and Cody's still up there around 30. Yeah, it, it gets included in the Russell 1000 value and it's not one that has overlap. It's not value, uh, it's not in the growth one as well. So it is purely a place in that in that value bucket and again it's just the lower the trend of lower highs and again look think about the performance over seven years probably uh down versus a market that's up and as you said still trading at a uh, a premium so it goes to show that uh sometimes poor trends that are down and out can still be expensive uh, 
And so I guess that here's one where the, the technicals and fundamentals uh, line up nicely. True. All right. Well, we will see if the Kardashians or anyone else can turn things around here. We'll leave it there. Ari Wald, thank you. Christina Partsenevelis, thank you so much as well. The story on Cody today. And still ahead, not even the so-called safe investments were immune to selling in January. The vehicles that saw outflows for the first time in nearly two years. We have those details coming up. But first, forget calories. Climate could soon be what influences diners' choices at restaurants. We'll explain next on The Exchange. Welcome back, everybody. Food production counts for a quarter of all greenhouse gas emissions. A new study finds that telling consumers about the environmental impact of the food they're eating does, in fact, influence their choices. Diana Olick explains. We've all seen the calorie counts on food packaging. Some restaurants even put it on the menu. So why not a carbon count or at least a consideration? That's what researchers at the World Resources Institute tested on more than 6,000 consumers with remarkable results. Certain environmental messaging doubled consumers' ordering of low-carbon plant-based items. The menu messages ranged from joining a movement to a sustainable future to small changes, big impact. One suggested taste benefits. Those whose menus included the sustainability messages were more likely to select lower-carbon meals. At the recent climate summit in Glasgow, packaged foods offered an actual carbon count. Can a Chipotle burrito bowl change the world? Chipotle offers carbon information for its food both on its website and app. They call it a food print. Now you can measure how the ingredients in your order help to reduce its impact on the planet. It's the average impact on things like carbon in the atmosphere, water saved, um, soil health, organic land that you say by eating at Chipotle versus somewhere else that uses conventionally raised ingredients. We know people are making decisions based upon it. Panera offers a similar strategy with cool food meals, highlighting those items with a low carbon footprint. So do consumers really care? It does matter, I mean, as a whole for the environment, but I mean, just if I'm going to Chipotle instead of chicken or beef, like I'm just gonna get what I like. Absolutely, um, I'm vegan, so um, I'm a big proponent of you know, Chipotle doesn't actually items. put a carbon count on its foods because you can only do that when the food comes from one place. That's why it would be hard to have any kind of national carbon label on food. Still, the messaging apparently does make a difference, Kelly. Yeah, calories are a little easier, and even then we get readings sometimes that are all over the map. So how could this information be information that consumers really trust? Well, it's the kind of thing that if you invest in the messaging, and that's actually what the U.S. government is doing right now. The USDA just announced today that it's investing $1 billion in so-called clean agriculture. That's companies as well as farmers, as well as cities and states that will go more toward this clean agriculture idea. That is perhaps put more money into startups that do that kind of carbon capture. We, in fact, profiled one of the small ones on your show a couple of months ago, one that takes agricultural waste, boils it into an oil and shoots it back into the ground. So it's that kind of messaging, that clean agricultural messaging that will inevitably make a difference. Very interesting. A look at the next chapter. Diana, thank you very much. Our Diana Olick reporting. Rising rates, inflation, supply chain issues, it's all contributing to the wall of worry for the market. And now there's another factor adding to the volatility. The names that might be able to weather the storm are next. And remember, you can catch the show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange podcast. Check out my new conversations with Kelly as well. Uh, the most recent episode features none other than Fast Money's John and Pete Nigerian talking football, 
just in time for the Super Bowl. Ask him about their whole careers. You can listen wherever you get their podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. We all know it's been a wild start to the year for stocks with the NASDAQ falling 10%. A lack of liquidity is playing a role in this volatility. That's dropped to levels not seen since the 2020 sell-off. For more on that and the best way to navigate these ups and downs, I'm joined by Degas Wright. He's the chief investment officer at Decatur Capital Management, and he's a CNBC contributor. Degas, it's great to have you here. So let's start. What do we know about liquidity? Where's all the market volume? Yeah, so one of the problems is that the uh, M2, the velocity of money is being reduced. Obviously, we don't have the stimulus and the Fed is starting to slow the bond buying. So that's going to slow down the velocity of money, which is the rate of people that uh, spend cash. So that's a problem. Also, ETFs. You've noticed that ETFs come in at the end of the uh, trading day, and that's where most of the velocity because they take down the liquidity and that brings down, that increases the velocity. I always think about these conditions as making it, you know, tougher for investors who are checking on this stuff day to day, but creating big opportunities, the very kinds of opportunities people feel like they're missing out on when the market just placidly ticks higher half a percent every day. Exactly. And so what we start looking for are those stocks that have pricing power, because ultimately that's where you want to spend your time researching and you have to be very selective in your stocks. You want to find those stocks that have high demand for their products or services. You want to find stocks that have a low, uh, being able to be replaced at a very low rate. And also, you want those stocks that have a high barrier of entry. A high, yeah, exactly, for competitors. All right, so you have at least three names here which you think actually could be a place for investors to look. EOG is one of them, an energy play, Key Corp, the bank, and Amphenol. So each one of these, what makes them attractive to you? What makes them attractive? If we look at the energy, uh, the oil has went from, it was uh, about $48 at the end of 2020. It is now at about $90, 100% gain. So you want to have some exposure to energy. And one of the best companies that we found is EOG Resources. It has a very compelling growth profile. It has an inventory of opportunities for drilling and a very disciplined management team. What we really like about it is that in the last, since 2018, it has increased its revenues from natural gas, which is a cleaner burning fuel, by 70%. Also, the management team ties their compensation to the reduction of carbon emissions. Lastly, we look at where is is the uh, market sentiment. The market sentiment is very good for EOG. It surprised on EPS about 7%, and it's up about 29% year-to-date. If we look at the banking um, sector, key, yeah, key bank, we really which like I'm, regional bank. I'm curious as well, and I, you're going to speak to this, but at a time when people are concerned about the flattening yield curve, explain why you think key bank would still be attractive. It's attractive because ultimately, as we have the interest rates increasing, basically regional banks get most of their revenues from the net interest income. Unlike the big banks that get their uh, cash flows from also capital markets and the uh, asset managers, and these the uh, capital markets, asset managers have been doing poorly given this market. So you want to look at regional banks, plus the fact that uh, Key Corp has increased their loans by 6%, they increased their deposit by 8%, and then also they have an acquisition strategy. They've added uh, a uh, business-to-business digital platform. 
They have a, they just acquired a analytical consulting company and a digital lending platform. Once again, we look at where's the market sentiment. Market sentiment for uh, Key Corp is very positive. It has a EPS surprise of about 12%, year date, Price performance about 13%. So that's why we really like KeyCorp, a regional bank. Yeah, and as I said, your last pick is Amphenol, ticker APH. They make cables and circuits. They have industrial and military demand. Could you just give us a parting comment then on what you're expecting for the market this year and the risks around the Fed? It sounds like you do think that what we've seen in January is the template for what's still to come. Exactly. So what we see is that there's going to be a lot of volatility in the first half. The second half, we're going to see the uh, market smooth out a little bit. But during that first half, we're expecting that in March, there's going to be a Fed heightening of the interest rates, maybe as much as 50, uh, 50 bips. And then we see another 25 to 50 bips by year end. So first half is going to be very bumpy. Second half will start smoothing out. All right. Degas, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it very much. Thank you. Degas writes on the markets. Up next, we're sticking with volatility, taking a look at some ETFs that could see choppiness this week and the names outperforming during a time like this. Dow's up 87. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. Seems obvious, but investors always want to follow the money when it comes to investing, especially these ETF flows we're seeing lately. Christina Partsinevelis is here now to explain why. What are we seeing, Christina? Well, we know that ETFs weren't spared, unfortunately, in the big stock reversal of January 2020. And this, as ETFs overall, collected over $36 billion of new money in January. Sounds like a lot, but that's less than every single month month last year. Fixed income, in particular, gave up over $6 billion in January to investor withdrawals, the first month of net outflows since March 2020. But we could see some inflows, to your point, Kelly, as companies are so flush with cash right now. So Bank of America analysts say, go after the dividends, which is why they recommend the Spider, Vanguard, and Schwab dividend ETFs that you're seeing on your screen right now, as well as some buyback funds like BlackRock's Div B, that's a ticker over there, you're seeing down about 1.5% right now, and then Invesco's PKW, also down 4.62%, yeah, 4.5% uh, since early January. But be on the lookout this week. Several ETFs could get hit by volatility because of earnings, of course. As we saw with XLC, and that had 23 exposure or 23% of exposure to Meta, and hence the reason why it dropped. But this week, focus on pharma ETF IHE, which allocates about 22% of its holding to Pfizer alone. So we could see some sharp swings tomorrow once earnings come out. And then you've got global travel ETF Away that has at least 5% allocated to Expedia and 4% to Lyft. Both company earnings are out this week, so that could cause some swings. A lot in there for you, Kelly. I know. It's like, uh, it's just a good reminder that, you know, so in the obvious cases, these react to earnings. And um, in other cases, sometimes the flows themselves can give us information. Uh, yeah, but often the flows themselves can give information, but it doesn't necessarily equate to performance. And I don't think that a lot of people look at the allocation, the weighting allocation for a lot of these ETFs. For example, I know we talked about this ESG. So many of those ESG ETFs focus on big tech. And then that XLC that I just mentioned is has a huge weighting and exposure to meta. So those things you have to keep in mind if you decide to buy into these ETFs and, and not just for the, the tech factor or the environment factor or the energy factor. Bingo. Exactly. Exactly. Christina, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Christina Parts and Evelis. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, 
same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.